0: I'm Jay Moran.
1: I'm Bridget J. Paul Valenzo. I'm Thomas O'Neill-White.
2: I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard.
0: This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're gonna have some real
1: healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. This is What's Next, Thomas O'Neill White and Jay Moran here with a very special guest, author, professor, historian, and the founder and director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for being on with us today. Of course. Thank you for having me.
0: It is great to have you, and uh, I want to talk about a couple of things, uh, your recent works, and I want to start it off with Barracoon. Adapted for Young Readers. Tell us what made this book important for you to do at this time.
2: Well, Barracoon is uh, based on... The life story of, of Kudjo Lewis, a story that Zora Neale Hurston, the legendary novelist and folklorist and anthropologist, uh, recorded in the late 1920s. And what makes Kudjo Lewis's story different and incredibly unique is he tells the story of his own story of being born and raised in Africa, in West Africa, being kidnapped brought over on the Middle Passage, enslaved in Alabama, then finding or being emancipated, and then Jim Crow. So his story really tracks so many different periods in in modern history, in American history. And so being able to introduce young people uh, about the transatlantic human trade, about slavery, about Africa, about Jim Crow, through, through personal story. I don't know of another book uh, that that's a better introduction.
0: And Zora uh, Neale Hurston tried to get this
2: published, but could not. Can you give us a little background on that? So Zora was not just intent on uh, collecting Kajo's story. She also wanted to write his story in a way that he spoke it. And so, you know, she wanted to uh, she, in her original manuscript, literally wrote Kajo's voice. And it, it, it was a voice of, of rural southern uh, African Americans in Alabama. Uh, and they spoke their form of, of Ebonics. And so she wrote that out in her script, uh, or I should say, in her manuscript. And publishers wanted her to change it, it said people wouldn't be able to understand this. And she refused. And, and she knew that the sound of culture is language, and she wanted to preserve his culture. And, and so, as a result, it wasn't published in her lifetime. She dies in
1: 1960, and Barracoon wasn't
2: published until 2018.
1: And, and why wasn't the book published during Zora Neale Hurston's time?
2: She was not, she refused to change his language. And she, she the way he spoke, and the way she wrote it publishers wanted it to, 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 to be uh to to, to 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 be like um you know a more quote traditional english and she refused and and so as a result that she couldn't find a publisher
0: it's interesting of course you adapted this for young readers and i'm not i didn't read uh, her original version of it but at the same time for young readers and thinking about how i read to my kids how much this language and the way Kojo speaks actually I think is going to make, for a lot of people, we'll have to have, let, let the uh, parents and the children out there decide for themselves, a very you know engaging, interesting read or, or read to a, a young person.
2: Well, and, and that's what I hope and, and, and I think in, in many ways I think parents and teachers are introducing multilingual literature to to young people in which there are multiple voices, multiple languages, and there certainly is is that in this book. And and one of my challenges in in writing, or I should say adapting Barracoon, was balancing retaining Kajo's voice and his language with writing it in a way that kids could read it. So they're going to have to slow down (laughs) to, to read his voice, but I, I tried to write it in a way that they could still sound it out uh, and understand
1: his form of English. And b- multilingual, um, being able to speak multiple languages or understand multiple languages, that's something you wanted to import impart on your on your daughter. Is that not correct?
2: Indeed, uh, you know, I, I want my daughter to to be able to go. Into an African American community that primarily speaks Ebonics and be able to understand uh, and speak and hear, uh, just like I'd love for her to go into a Spanish-speaking community and, mm-hmm. you know, and understand and, you know, just like I'd I'd love for her to go into, you know, another community that's that speaks, you know, English and obviously be able to, to understand it and, and but I think too often, particularly in the United States everyone who doesn't speak a more traditional form of English is looked down upon. It's, it's imagined that they shouldn't speak their language or that their English is broken. Uh, when to, to call a language broken is a contradiction in terms. Languages are a form of communication with rules and there are so many different languages <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, in the world uh, and we should respect them all.
0: What about from a, a modern standpoint bringing that language forward as well? Just the, the, the idea that in some ways Kojo's voice is silenced. I mean, it, it changed over the years. I, I suppose maybe we could go to some places in the United States and find a similar dialect. I'm not really sure if that's the case uh, 100 years later. But what about that, the importance of bringing that forward to now?
2: Well, to me, that's one of the reasons why what Zora Neale Hurston did in, in terms of not only uh, interviewing Kajo to to learn his own personal story, but listening very deeply to how he told his story and and writing it down, because she was not only able to preserve his story, but to preserve an aspect of his culture. And so we can get a sense of, of what a rural uh, Alabama, uh, black, how they were, black men, how they were speaking in 1927 and and 1928. And, And I just think that's incredibly important when we're trying to understand history.
1: What do you want a child to get out of reading your adaptation? A child of any color, any creed, any race?
2: Well, I want them to start to begin to understand slavery. And I'm hoping that The child comes out of this book becoming even more curious, wanting to learn more about every sort of step in his journey, wanting to learn more about uh, traditional African communities where people were taken from and and enslaved, wanting to learn more about the march to the coast that that Kajo had to endure, wanting to learn more about the barracoon where Kajo was held uh, on the coast, wanting to learn more about the... Middle Passage, you know, across the ocean, and and slavery, and plantation slavery, and you know, the Civil War, and Jim Crow, wanting to learn more about each aspect of, of Kojo's story.
0: I'm wondering if you have a thought on this. Kojo's story is fascinating, obviously, as you just mentioned, the different a- aspects of it, but as you were taking in his language and then adapting it, did you get a sense for who what type of person Kojo was? Do you have a, a, a characterization of him?
2: Well, I think I think the beauty about this book is I think everyone will be able to discern for themselves, right, who they think what type of person he we think he was. I mean, for me, I, I think this was a man who was incredibly proud. Um, you know, of uh, like just a prideful man. Um, this was a man who longed to be home in Africa, even pushing 90 years old. He, he you, You'll read and, and see just how much he still felt like he was on foreign soil. Yep. And this was a man who loved his great-granddaughters mm. and adored them. Uh, this was a... A, a, a man who felt he didn't forget anything. <laughs> so there were times where Zorro would come and, and say, well, remember we, we left off here, and he's like, I didn't forget anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know exactly where we left off. <laughs> uh, so in a way, he's, you know, and, and I think he has a sense of humor. He's a person who loves to eat. So Zorro would bring him a number of different treats uh, to deepen their relationship and 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 of course he he was always excited when she did
1: how did you come onto this story um did you read a lot of hurston initially so i think
2: i like i think other uh, admirers of zora's work when when barracoon the adult version came out in 2018 you know i immediately you know got it and 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 read it and was completely you know, blown away, so that, that's why when later I had the opportunity to start adapting you know, some of her work uh, for children, I you know, I knew I was going, that this was gonna be one of the books.
0: We're talking with uh, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi today on what's next. Uh, not only do we uh, have Barracoon in front of us as well, but your recent um, on Netflix, of course, as well. Um, uh, the uh, stamp, stamp from, from, from the beginning. beginning. Yes, um, very powerful piece of work there for sure mm-hmm. and I want to get into to some elements of that if, if we could as well um, what about that for for you, let's go back to origin stories, it won the NBA the National Book Award right in 2016 for nonfiction. fiction um, w- what about for you th- that work
2: so I think in terms of the film I think it, it, it certainly not only came about uh, certainly it's adapted based on you know, my book by the same title, Stamped from the Beginning, but this is a book, Stamped from the Beginning, that's a sweeping narrative history of of, of anti-black racist ideas, literally from their origins in in 15th century Portugal, and they're spread around uh, Western Europe, their sort of migration to colonial America, and their sort of life in the United States. So it's a pretty extensive and detailed history. It, it spans well over 500 pages. And and certainly there are many, many people who will sit down and read a narrative history book, uh, particularly if it, if it reads well. Um, but others may not. They may not have the time. They, they may not have the interest. But to me, this history is so critically important. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was excited to, to work with with this team of incredible filmmakers to 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 adapt it um you know for the big screen and and I'm glad it's on Netflix cuz you know many people have access to that platform
0: uh there's so much inside there that I want to get into and I guess I was going to hold this off till till later on a little bit but of the themes that you're covered there and there's so many uh the one myth of the black criminal mm-hmm. um again it 's so multi layered but I, I think about here in New York State a few years ago, landmark bail reforms were made, and almost as soon as they passed, anecdotal um, accusations came out that these reforms made people unsafe let 's if we could i want I, re- I really think there's of all the elements inside that movie, and again they 're all somewhat intertwined, but the myth of The black criminal seems like of all of those things, it is there are so many layers to it. And the one that starts out and stands out is fear and fear mongering. What about that? And as you see it right now, I I don't want to ask you already on if you have hope. We can save that for later in the conversation. But when you see this, is that what I'm, I'm at a loss when I consider it, how this is ever going to be overcome. There are so many elements to it.
2: I mean, there are. And, and in many cases, uh, people are, are taught uh, to fear black people. And it's, 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 it's almost instinctual, you know, for people. And, but, I, but, I, but I also think that people not only sort of instinctually have been taught to, to fear black people, they also intellectualize their fear. And, and, and what I mean by that is people will say, well, it is the case that uh, that the, quote, black neighborhood has more homicides or more violent crimes. So therefore, you know, black people are engaging in more violence and more crime. That that neighborhood is more dangerous. And they imagine it's more dangerous because there's more black people. The problem with those ideas is that they don't actually stand up to scrutiny. And so one of the most obvious ways they don't stand up to scrutiny is that we are taught that what makes that, quote, neighborhood dangerous are the black people. (laughs) So if that was true, then that means all black neighborhoods, no matter their levels of poverty or wealth, would have the same levels of violent crime. But they don't upper income black neighborhoods have far and away low lev- lower levels of, of, of violence than lower income black neighborhoods. And it, that just so happens to be the case across racial groups. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you have longer term poverty and higher levels of unemployment. You tend to have higher levels of you know, violence. And I think one of the ways in which we can be rethinking this is instead of picturing certain communities, as dangerous black neighborhoods, I think it's important for us to to begin to see them as dangerous unemployed neighborhoods. And then once we see that, who or what is the problem transforms? Because it's no longer the people in that neighborhood (laughs) are the problem. Then the very politicians who continue to spend resources to create more prisons and 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 hire more police as opposed to creating more and better jobs (laughs) uh you know become the problem and and it and it's not surprising to me that the very people who could could abolish the poverty and thereby the violence that's stemming from it are also blaming (laughs) the people who are the who are the main Mm -hmm. victims you know of that violence it's it's to me it's 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 interrelated, so I'm saying that all to say that I wish that we could, as a human community, recognize that no racial group is more violent or more dangerous. But if we create conditions where people are forced to live in poverty, we create conditions where people don't have access to um, to, to 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 mental health services, where people don't have access to. Uh, services for, for addiction, when we create uh, all sorts of conditions, that's going to lead to more violence. And then we're going to blame those people as opposed to us for creating those conditions.
1: I want to take us back uh, to 2020 um, following the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. There was a lot of talk of, uh, of a racial reckoning that year. Um, but what has happened over the last four years? Are we still at a racial reckoning point? Have we learned anything? Have we squandered anything? Where are we four years um, well yeah about four years later
2: Well actually let's let's take it back to 2020 because during almost immediately when Americans of of, of all backgrounds you know in the smallest and largest of up, towns started demonstrating against, Uh, police violence and and racism uh, there emerged this narrative that demonstrators and these demonstrations were quote violent and uh, you know particularly the president of the united states at the time you and others started sort of spinning you know this narrative that the problem wasn't (laughs) uh police violence the problem uh wasn't um racism the problem were those demonstrators and what's ironic is uh, by the end of the summer uh, studies had shown that more than 95 percent of demonstrations that summer were actually peaceful and then of the mm-hmm. remaining ones that were violent the majority of those turned violent because of police violence <laughs> right so that's the irony is people were demonstrating, against police violence and suffering police violence, which is actually what happened in Buffalo, where the elderly uh, man was Ah. was knocked over, uh, you know, by a police officer. And then the President of the United States, who claimed he's a defender of white people, uh, admonished this elderly white guy, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, uh, you know, even though he was a a victim of police violence. And, and, And so then it went from the demonstrators of the problem to CRT is the problem, to wokeism is the problem, to now DEI is the problem, all covering up the actual problem that we called for in uh, in 2020, which was racism. And the irony about each of those elements is the way that it was positioned in 2020 was that these demonstrators are coming for white Americans, CRT, is anti-white, DEI, wokeism, is anti-white, which inflamed Americans to think that, particularly white Americans, that, that this sort of movement against racism was a movement against them, which then even inflamed uh, younger people to pick up guns and, and engage in mass shootings, thinking that they were defending white people, which also happened here in Buffalo.
0: Um, I just have to make a note, um, speaking of what happened in Buffalo and police violence, um, my colleague Thomas O'Neill White was covering one of the protests and was among those pepper sprayed uh, here yes. in the city of Buffalo in 2020. Got um, it pretty good. Yes. Um, racism and the police. I'm, I'm just throwing that out there as a, just two words that, that, that or two terms that uh, don't have to come together, but are the two intertwined? Right now,
2: I, th- I mean, I, I think that in, in in many ways, a lot of Americans who were in denial about the pervasiveness of racism and particularly racist violence have been awakened uh, to to that problem through witnessing police violence, in which it was unmistakable to them that uh, that. That violence occurred because of racism. But I, I think it, it is important for us to, to think even more broadly than the police. Like, it's, it's very easy for us to essentially position the police uh, as the problem. Uh, and, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, if, if you, let's say you're an elected official and you constantly create this narrative atmosphere that people in a particular community are animals or or rapists uh, or thugs uh, or super predators. Um, So you create that idea and you get people in the community fearing them as dangerous. Who's going to be included in those people in the community? The police. And then you send the police into those communities and say, protect us from those animals. What do you think is going to happen? Um, and, and so I think it's, you know, what the police, when police are engaged in violence, it's part of a larger problem of, of us imagining that those people who are subjected to police violence are the problem, as opposed to the conditions that they're forced to live under being the problem.
0: What about the training for police? We hear a lot of that talk. Um, is it clear that, A, there needs to be more training, and B that the training could be successful? I mean, can we take the same people who maybe have been entrenched in this for 10, 20 years and expect them to change and change a community like Buffalo?
2: To me, that that is that is a steep climb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I mean, and, and it's a steep climb uh, largely because of what we were just talking about and even the history of policing i mean you know you know the the, obviously policing in the united states you know emerged uh, during the enslavement era as slave patrols right so can you imagine if we were having this debate in 1830 and we were saying yeah we need to figure out ways to better train those who patrol enslaved people i mean it, it would be inconceivable but that's pretty much what we're doing now expecting uh, things to change. And, and unfortunately, there was more police violence this past year than in 2020. Uh, and so the police violence is not ebbing. Uh, and, and, and and so I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, people are calling for a complete reimagining, you know, of public safety. Because when you imagine that what's going to keep you safe are prisons and police, you're actually creating danger for the community.
1: I wanted to quickly circle back because you had mentioned uh DEI, CRT, uh wokeism. Can you can you kind of explain uh for us the, the co-opting of the of this kind of social justice language uh by folks whose motives are not on the level? Sure. So so there was a
2: um I believe it was in two thousand six, a A a longtime neo-Nazi propagandist uh, by the name of, I believe his name was Bob Whitaker, wrote this uh, online screed called The Mantra. And and in this screed, uh, he complains about white people being subjected to uh, a coming genocide. He ends the screed stating that anti-racist is code for anti-white. The reason why I mention this is because, you know, in 2020, when anti-racism became uh, more and more prominent, that was the way in which uh, those who were seeking to conserve racism recast it. So they recast uh, anti-racist as anti-white. Then they recast critical race theory as anti-white. Now they're casting DEI as, quote, excluding or harming white people and allowing people of color to get in positions when they're unqualified. And, 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 and I think, I don't think, I don't think people realize that this old white supremacist talking point is now mainstream. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't think people realize that they believe white supremacist talking points. And, and cause obviously, can you imagine if you believe that, People are coming for you violently, right? People are coming for your job. Um, And, you know, what type of reaction that's going to create? That's going to create a violent reaction. That's going to create a divisive reaction. That's going to create all sorts of division in society. And then if you, as an elected official, present yourself as the defender of those people, right, as the savior of those people, then you're able to manipulate them into supporting you when your policies are actually what's really causing them harm,
0: um, I want to uh, just to swing back just a little bit back to the myth of the black criminal, mm-hmm. because uh, I, I would love to get some thoughts out from you of how we can address it on this program and try to to counter that narrative to a certain extent. but I'm um, in, in uh, back into the uh, into the, the documentary or movie. You have a nice aside about Ida B. Wells, who does this incredible work of going into the South and countering these lynchings that are taking place throughout the South. People accused of doing heinous crimes strung up without jury or judge, and yet she's able to counter that. Now, she didn't necessarily have a lot of publications. She didn't have modern broadcast, she didn't have social media, so although her work was valiant, it probably didn't do a lot to necessarily change the narrative of the time. Now we move back to here, at this time, twenty twenty four. Is there enough bandwidth? Is there enough conversation to counter this myth of the black criminal?
2: I I, I think it's it's a it is a very difficult um conversation and and i think the reason why it's so difficult is because the idea that black people are dangerous is a widely held belief and it's not just believed among non-black people even black people believe that idea and 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 and, and so it 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 is incredibly like it is very difficult for people to 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 sort of overcome that idea, the other challenge, and I think we were getting at this earlier, is that if, and I think you mentioned earlier that with with bail reform, it it, it then led to some people claiming that someone who received bail committed a crime. So what happens is, like in order to transform our criminal legal system, with new policies, the opponents of those policies can always claim hmm. it was that policy that then led to, you know, that, you know, that homicide, you know, or, or you know, that, that robbery. And, and 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 that then undermines the work. Right. There's no data behind that. If, if anything, the data is supporting that it's reducing it. But it only takes one. And so then people get scared and fearful then they think that policy change or that narrative change is going to harm them. So actually, one of the things I would, I would actually I constantly encourage people to do is to look at the top 10 leading causes of death in the United States or even in, 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 in Buffalo. The top 10 leading causes of death are not homicides. <laughs> it's not there. Violent crimes are not there. It's diseases. <laughs> It's suicides. It's unintentional injuries, and and the reason why I'm mentioning that is because if people were serious about surviving and creating safety, then all the money we're spending to um, to lock people up or to hand out guns to to, to sort of uh, agents of the state, we would be actually uh, pouring into research. <laughs> for better treatments so people when they get cancer or heart disease they're they're less likely to die or mental health treatment so so people are less likely to commit suicides or we would be taking guns off the street since those guns are leading to massive spikes in in suicide levels particularly among white men but that that's what sort of goes to show for me that people aren't really truly about safety <laughs> you know because they're not really talking about the main way in which Americans die.
0: And uh, just, I uh, just uh, did a little uh, <laughs> quick research about in Buffalo, um, in terms of uh, assaults are down, robberies are down, burglaries flat, uh, homicides were way down in 2023 in Buffalo. We're with the Dr. Ibram X. Kendi uh, this morning on What's Next, and glad to have him along. We've been talking about his newest book, Barracoon, adapted for young readers, the Zora Neale Hurston book, and also about uh, his recent uh, documentary on uh, uh, Netflix, uh, Stamped from the Beginning, which was also an adaptation of his 2016 uh, non-fiction book as well. I, if you don't mind, how about for you, I'm just, if I could explore a little bit your personal background, what what brought you to this type of scholarship?
2: It was quite the journey. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think it was, I grew up in, in Queens, in in the 1980s and 1990s and particularly in the 1990s as as many people know this was a decade in which particularly black youth were constantly rendered the problem Hmm. so it was imagined by both parties that we were super predators it it was imagined that uh, black girls were quote having too many babies because they wanted to get welfare it was imagined black kids did not value education we were constantly being lectured to we were constantly being demonized you know in the media uh we were imagined to be a menace to society and on and on and 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 so by the time i graduated high school i was trying i I had thought that black people were the problem and well, when I got to college, I started to study African-American history. I started to uh, study racism, and I started to realize that that, that wasn't the case. And, and the more I learned about how we have problematized a group to cover up the real problem, which are the, structure, the structures of racism, the more I wanted to learn more. And the more I wanted to learn more, the more I wanted to share my research, and training, you know, with others.
1: What does your your work, your ongoing anti-racist work mean for for white people and their children moving forward?
2: I mean, there's so many different ways. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that one of the major fears uh, is the continued growth of white supremacist organizations. And many of these white supremacist organizations are recruiting intensely online, specifically preteen and early teen white male teenagers. And if you have not taught or the school system has not taught those white teenagers how to identify Racist ideas, how to identify white supremacist ideology, then they're extremely vulnerable to being recruited into these organizations, uh, and you know, and potentially harming people, you know, as a result of, of of the ideology that 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 was indoctrinated to them. So, and that's the irony, right? You you have the people who claim that they're banning books and censoring anti-racist education. To quote, protect white children are leaving white children vulnerable <laughs> uh, to uh, racist ideas, and and I think simultaneously, uh, their parents are being vulnerable because it when when you don't know when a person does not know, it's easier to manipulate them. It's easier to control them. It's easier for dictators and tyrants and propagandists uh, to. Tell white people the source of the pain that I know you're feeling are those black people, are those brown people. And if they don't know that that's not true, if they don't know that black and brown people are actually suffering just as much, if not more, than they are, if they don't know that the source of their collective pain are the very individuals who are telling them that those black people are the source of their pain, then they become right again for manipulation and control. And that's precisely. What's happening now when you have these demagogues who are largely those who are in positions um, uh, you know, of power that are trying to recruit white Americans and these very demagogues are legislating for ignorance to ensure that they can continue to do that. What's the difference between poor white people and poor black people? So I think the largest the biggest difference is is that poor black people are more likely to live in densely impoverished neighborhoods. And and so if you're poor and white, you're more likely than poor black people to live in a multi-income neighborhood. And but aside from that, <laughs> there's really no difference, right? Uh-huh. And and but I think the other major difference is, is poor white people are largely excluded from the American picture. It, it, it's almost imagined that they don't exist. And, 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 and the reason why I think they are excluded from the American picture is because it doesn't reinforce white superiority. And anything that doesn't reinforce white superiority uh, is typically sort of removed, and because it's imagined that there's something wrong with poor people, right? So we, you know, mm-hmm. if you're white and you're trying to present white people as the most superior, you're not going to want uh, poor white people to be present, even though there's nothing wrong with poor white people. <laughs> Just like there's nothing wrong with poor black people, and you know, and 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 so I think there's so many shared uh, connections between poor black people and poor white people, and but unfortunately in too many cases, there's been divisions uh, between those groups because of racist ideas. Uh, and, and that's one of the things we showed in, in Stamp from the Beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, the ways in which working class and poor black people have been divided uh, so that uh, the owners uh, and the leaders of society can continue to conquer us.
0: Speaking of Stanford from the Beginning, uh, I, one part that caught me it was very strong and I know you're a producer of it it's, it's based on your book but the uh, scholars that were in there the question was asked what's the matter with black people and uh, the for the most part it was answered in, in silence as well what about that question though I'm I'm interested in how how that emerged uh, into that into that uh, conversation into that narrative because it really was a, a stark moment inside the inside it
2: so you know, as a, as a scholar, I, I, I'm not just interested in, in, in producing scholarship for academics. You know, I really want regular everyday folks to be able to understand and really read um, my work, you know, and the work of other scholars. And, and so when we were thinking about how to frame this documentary, stand from the beginning, on the history of racist ideas, we thought about, okay, what is the best way to, to, to convey the anti-black racist ideas to to regular folks? So, because people don't walk around saying black people are inferior. You know, this is 2024. People don't say that anymore. But what do people say? What people typically do say is this is what's wrong with black people. And so that's one of the reasons why, and that's a connotation of inferiority. When you convey that a particular group, that there's something wrong with them, or right about them, better or worse, that's a connotation of inferiority. So that's one of the reasons why we, we wanted to sort of frame the film with that question.
0: I'm interested also, because you have the book, you have the movie, and I'm sure there's, you know, you're communicating your message from your scholarship. What about your scholarship, though? Are there still areas that you feel you need to go to, you need to keep digging in? Are you still being surprised about about what you find out about the history of black america?
2: Oh, I mean, I mean that that is to me one of the best parts of being a, a scholar is because I have the opportunity to constantly conduct research, constantly relearn and rethink And revise uh, and think more deeply about how racism is operating how we can be anti-racist about the history of 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 african americans and 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 that it's it to be a scholar is to be on a constant sort of journey of discovery and and if you're truly on a journey of discovery you're going to constantly find things that are that are new and different um and 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 i think that That's incredibly important. Um, And and, and that's one of the things I, I enjoy most about being a scholar.
1: Given the work you do, given the position that you're in, how do you deal with some of the pushback you get?
2: I think, let me just say, I think the biggest challenge that I have with the pushback, specifically about me and my work, is that a lot of the pushback Misrepresents my work and then attacks the misrepresentation. Hmm. So, like, what do you do? (laughs) Like, you know, what do you do if, like, you know, if you're a member of the Buffalo Bills, right? And 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 someone is attacking you like you're a New York Giant. Like, how do you even respond to that? Like, what do you even start start with? Um, It's not my fault. It's Daniel Jones. Please come on, guys. So, like, you know, like you clearly don't know who I am and, and what I say and what I've done. You clearly didn't see my my tape. You may have seen, you know, another sort of player's tape. And so that to me is the biggest challenge. But at the same time. I have to accept that oftentimes people misrepresent the work of others when they can't challenge it after accurately representing it. And so I try to just remember that, that just the wide misrepresentation of my work possibly is because the work is heavily researched and cited, Mm -hmm. you know, and evidenced. And uh, but it's hard. It's constantly hard.
0: I saw you speak uh, here in Buffalo in 2019. I think it was just after, uh, a, a perhaps, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist came out. And the, I recall it was over at Bayville, which I think is a place where you're heading to uh, shortly, actually, to, for another uh, uh, speaking engagement as well. And uh, you were on, I don't recall the gentleman's name who was on stage with you. I think it was a podcaster from Philadelphia. But in, I was interesting because I, I, I guess I was looking for a how-to, how to be an anti-racist. Um, But you you took us through the history of slave trading, how slave trading really started with Slavics initially. I recall that as well. But the two things I remember you making uh, points about, black people just need opportunities and resources. Do you still feel that? And if that's the case, can you point to opportunities and resources that can get to people to make a difference in in this society?
2: Sure. Well, and and you know, l- let me just, you know, let me let me just say that I do still still believe that that's all Black people need. I I don't think that that Black people need like that. There's anything wrong with our behaviors or our cultures as a group. Um, certainly, there's nothing wrong with our genetic makeup. And and let me just sort of say, when I say that there's nothing wrong with our behaviors, I'm not saying that there's no individual black person who couldn't be working harder or who shouldn't have engaged in that violence. What I'm saying is when we think about black people, we should be thinking about a group of people <laughs> mm-hmm. and comparing that group of people that have people who work harder and don't work hard with, with other groups of people who also have. People who work harder and don't work, you know, as hard. And, and and so when we think of black people as a group, that's all black people need, like any other group, is, is resources and opportunities. And, and, you know, I mean, I think in terms of what could be provided, basic incomes for everyone, including black people, so that we can eradicate poverty. I think reparations, uh, it, it's hard for anyone to claim that they have a problem with the racial wealth gap and and somehow propose a solution to closing that gap that doesn't involve reparations when wealth is passed on uh, and, and accumulated over time. Um, you know, certainly uh, ensuring that uh, healthcare, high quality healthcare is free and available. <laughs> For everyone. Uh, You know, I think those three things could go a long way uh, to uh, providing more resources and
1: opportunities for for for
2: black people and everyone, clearly.
1: How does your work and your research reflect on what has or what hasn't happened in Buffalo and Buffalo's east side since the tragic events of May 14th?
2: Well, I mean I, I what the biggest thing I would say is I I, I I think that since then the very theory that operated within the mind of of that shooter has become even more dominant in American society. You know great replacement theory is even more dominant today and more widespread and, and and believed among more white Americans than it was a year ago. and you have politicians even in this state uh, who who are running and campaigning and circulating those theories. now they're not they're not articulating it in the same way mm-hmm. as as that shooter, uh, but they're saying other things like. White people are being replaced on their jobs. Uh, you know they're saying other things like, you know, white people uh, don't have access to this opportunity because they keep going to underqualified black people, um, and, and I think that to me is what's what's tragic. Um, you know the tragedy that this that this community was forced to suffer through. Uh, you know before the entire world, uh, the ideas. Uh, that allowed that to happen uh, are still circulating, uh, and 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 we're not fighting against that.
1: And last year, you you spoke at a panel, uh beyond beyond hate panel, yes. um, at Roswell Park. What did you take from that discussion, and and what were the things you learned about Buffalo? I think.
2: I think the my biggest t- takeaway. I think from that conversation was just the depth of the grief that I think people were still facing and 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 dealing with sort of many months afterwards. And certainly, intellectually, I could imagine that that would be be happening. But it but it's another thing to really come to the community and and witness and feel and hear that, that, that level of grief. I mean, there were so many giants, uh, you know, of the community that were just taken and, uh, and, and to be taken in such a way, I, I just, yeah, I witnessed the, the grieving, uh, that still was persisting.
0: We're coming down to our, uh, our final minutes here with uh, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Um, a couple of things, uh, Dr. Henry Lewis-Taylor of the UB Center for Urban Studies was in with us a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him about, they've, come, they've spent a lot of time uh, diagnosing the problems of Buffalo for Buffalo's east side. Now they're coming up with new plans and lots of hoops to jump through to get those plans uh, moving forward. But I, kinda, I asked him about optimism, and one of the things I thought was interesting that he mentioned one of the things that really has meant, a couple things. One, he said there's a younger group of people. The younger people are open, it seems, to uh, advancing uh, the conversations. But another part, and I thought this was really interesting, the number of people who are, of scholars who are focusing on the realities of, of black life in America, he found hope in that. I'm wondering if you see the same thing. Are you seeing a a surge of people, I mean, most certainly, your film had plenty of uh, scholars in it for sure, but I'm just wondering if that's something that you see as well.
2: I do, and and, and I not only see more and more scholars and, and scientists uh, who are trying to find sort of research and evidence-based uh, solutions that have been proven to, to reduce inequity and in, in justice, i've I've also found in certain cases that, that 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 some of these scholars are finding platforms for their work uh, and and obviously that's part of the reason for this virulent sort of attack on higher education mm-hmm. <laughs> right and because you you have more and more scholars of who are standing up and stepping up and 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 using their research to to demonstrate racism is as the problem and and those who want to preserve racism are trying to cut to cut us down and trying to delegitimate us trying to get us fired and uh, as opposed to engaging in a debate with us hmm. uh in other words you know writing about how our evidence is is there's, there's something wrong with our findings but they can't do that <laughs> right and you know that, and, and so instead they tried to delegitimate, they tried to undermine, they they tried to, you know, get us fired. So that's the irony. So the very thing that we're witnessing, this attack on DEI and, and CRT, is partially a reflection because uh, so many scholars, you know, are, are involved in this work.
1: We went down to Charleston, South Carolina, uh, last spring to find out what has or what hasn't happened, been done uh, in that community um, following the Mother emmanuel shooting. And what we found is not a lot, not a lot of positive things have happened down there. Um, we're coming up on, on two years since the May 14th shooting, and not much has happened here in Buffalo. How do we move the needle forward? and 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 see the change that a lot of people said was going to happen in in the aftermath of these shootings so i ended up
2: i remember um writing an essay in the new york times after the police shooting of Philando castillo uh in, in in minnesota this was a a young black brother who was pulled over by a police officer and uh, told the officer as, as he was uh, supposed to by law that he had a, a weapon you know, in, in the car, he didn't reach for the weapon and, or do any of, of that, but the, the officer ended up shooting and killing him with his girlfriend uh, you know, in the car. And, and I remember writing an essay in reaction to that shooting that pretty much made the case that unfortunately black death matters in this country. And, and what I, what I, what I, what I meant by that is to create a society where the lives of black people uh, are, are are valued uh, would just be too much for people. <laughs> um, and, 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 and the, allowance of perpetual Black death uh, allows uh, people to sort of conserve their own picture of what America is, who America is, what it, what it used to be, um, all of which is a facade. Um, and, 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 and so I'm saying that to say that I think that this country deals better with Black death. Than it does black life.
1: Do you do you put yourself with uh, Ida B. Wells, the Sojourner Truths, the Frederick Douglasses? Do you put yourself in 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 that category? How do you see yourself?
2: Oh, I I think that's for other people too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are some giants. So, but at the same time, though,
0: there is that need, though, still, right? I mean. You know, we're talking about Ida B. Wells from early 1900s. Mm -hmm. You know, there's still needs, there's a great need for it still.
2: There is, and ironically, Frederick Douglass spent some time trying to declare that slavery was wrong. (laughs) Like he had to literally spend time trying to demonstrate how and why slavery is wrong and needs to be abolished. Ida B. Wells had to spend so much time declaring how and why lynchings were wrong and needed to stop. And and in this day and age, I'm having to declare and and and, and showcase how the mass incarceration, you know, of of black people shouldn't be happening. The disproportionate amounts of poverty of black people <laughs> shouldn't be happening the number of black uh students as young as preschool who are being suspended from schools at higher rates than than other children you know shouldn't be happening um but unfortunately these inequities and 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 injustices are so normal (laughs) Uh, And the ideas justifying them that, oh, of course she's getting those black four year old girls are getting suspended from school because they're bad. Like (laughs) are so normal, even Mm -hmm. as they are outrageous, that people see those of us who are speaking out against racism as abnormal or as the problem, as opposed to racism itself.
0: And how about uh, hope? Do you have hope?
2: So I, I don't. I don't know how people can create radical change without believing that change is possible. There there may be people who can do that, but at least me I, I have to believe that really the impossible is possible, you know, in order to do this work, you know, every single day. So I do have hope. And but it's not a sort of a passive hope. In which I'm sort of waiting around for for somebody to 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 transform society. I, I realize that I have to do my part and uh, join with others to to transform our society.
1: They say that that hope is the gift that that Black people give the world. Mm-hmm. Um, is that do you believe in that?
2: I don't. I think that without question, you know, black people, particularly in the United States, have... Their activism has been fueled by hope and their activism, our activism, has really been unending, you know, from the founding of this country. I also think that other groups of subjected peoples, you know, in this country, you know, and others have, their activism have also been fueled, you know, by hope. And so for me, I, I think hope is, 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 is the, is, is the gift uh, to humanity by people who are subjected, uh, who are subdued, who are oppressed, who are told that they're nothing. Um, and, and fortunately, those human beings have never lost hope that they can transform their conditions.
0: Well, all I can say, uh, Dr. Kennedy, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And your work. Um, And I can only encourage you to continue moving forward. Um,
1: Thanks very much for being with us on What's Next. Of
2: course. Thank you for having me.
1: And this is What's Next. You've been listening to author, professor, historian, and founder and director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. And you're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.